And turn with me to Genesis chapter 5 and stand for the reading of God's Word. This is God's inerrant, inspired, and infallible Word. Starting in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 850 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. And Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahalael. Then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalael, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalael lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahalael lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalael were 895 years, and he died. And Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son, Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 770 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham. And Japheth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Here before us, in our text this morning, we have 32 verses. 32 verses of genealogy. 32 verses that on the surface can seem repetitive, and they are. 32 verses that some may consider tedious or even boring. And so some might wonder. Why have you wasted our time reading through these mere stats, this list of names and numbers? Why don't we skip this text and get to the good stuff in the next chapter where we get to talk about things like the Nephilim or the flood in chapter 7? Well, the reason I read it to you, the reason we are not skipping this genealogy here in chapter 5 is twofold. First, there's biblical precedent for reading Scripture publicly. You might not realize it, but we don't stand up here and read the sermon text because because we like to hear ourselves speak. No, there is a tradition of reading Scripture publicly that goes all the way back to Paul the Apostle and the instruction that he gave to Timothy. 
Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And so this is why every Sunday morning we read the Word of God before the sermon. Second, we have read this text and will study it this morning because it is as much a part of the Word of God as any of your favorite passages of Scripture, such as Psalm 40 or Isaiah 40 or John 17 or Romans 8, and I could go on. There is not one passage of Scripture that is less valuable than another passage of Scripture. It is all the Word of God. And here at Lakewood Bible Chapel, we uphold the whole Word of God as inspired, inerrant, and infallible. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. And that includes Genesis chapter 5. And by the way, it also includes the roughly 935 verses in the Bible that have been dedicated to genealogies. There are at least 17 different passages of Scripture in the Bible where the names of real people and their descendants are meticulously listed for us to read, six of which are found in the book of Genesis, and of which we also see in Exodus, Numbers, 1 Chronicles, Matthew, and Luke. This constitutes roughly 3% of the whole of Scripture. Now, let's think about this for a moment. That may, that may seem like a, a, a small amount, 3%. But remember, we are talking about Scripture. We are talking about the very words of God, breathed out and given to us through the Holy Spirit-inspired writers of the Old and New Testament. Words that are given to us to instruct us, to teach us, to convict us and correct us, to train us in righteousness. And as we just read in 1 Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. So let's reject the temptation to just glance over this on our way to the good stuff in chapters 6, 7, and so on. Let's not make the grave mistake of thinking that these 32 verses before us are only merely beneficial as just a historical record. And it is a historical record. But instead, let's approach this portion of Scripture as we would any other for this is indeed the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. So I encourage you to keep this in mind as we now consider the first point in our outline, the book of the generations of Adam. Verses 1 to 5 read, This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God, and he created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days, of Adam, so all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 1 starts out with the phrase, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And there's two things to note here. First, we should... Take note of this word generations, which in the Hebrew is toledoth. You may remember toledoth being mentioned in our previous sermons on Genesis. More specifically, you may remember us teaching that this word is used to partition Genesis into its major parts. And typically it is used as a heading of a major section of the book. And so we hear, here we see this word toledoth used in the context of Adam and this tells us that we are about to read of Adam's story, that we are about to read of Adam's family. Second, we should take note of the key difference between this occurrence of the word generations or toledoth and all the other occurrences of this word in Genesis. Namely, that this is the only instance in which a book is mentioned alongside. And while it is not known for certain, it is very possible that Genesis 5 came from an actual written source that was available to Moses as a historical record of the family of Adam and the nine generations that followed him. And I think that there's something for us here. There are those, even in the church, that undermine the inspiration and authority of Scripture 
by trying to suggest that Genesis is not a historical book and that Adam was not a real historical figure. They suggest that Genesis is merely an allegory and that Adam is an archetype for humanity rather than an actual man who lived and died. And yet the words that we are reading this morning may very well have come from a historical record, a book, a detailed account of the men who were born, who lived, and who died in the line of Adam. And so this throws a bit of a wrench into the notion that Adam in this book of Genesis is a mere allegory. This is typical of the progressive church and is often where people start when they follow the destructive path of deconstructing their faith, a fairly recent trend in the so-called church today. More specifically, those who claim to have deconstructed their faith usually start by rejecting the authority of Scripture and instead making themselves the arbiters and supreme authority of all things. The unfortunate thing is, as we will see in a moment, this is a really bad idea. For man is fallen, man is sinful, man is flawed and imperfect, and therefore man, therefore you and I and everyone around us are pretty ill-prepared to be the arbiters and supreme authority over all things. On the contrary, we must turn to the one who is not fallen, to the one who is not sinful, to the one who is not flawed, to the one who is not imperfect like we are. We must relinquish our control and submit to the one who is on high, the one who is sinless, the one who is perfect. In every way, we must turn to the one who created all things and thus has actual authority over all things. And so this notion of deconstructing your faith is just a fancy and trendy term for the ancient practice of walking the way of Cain instead of submitting to Yahweh and his word. As Ecclesiastes says, there really is nothing new under the sun. Verse 1 continues and says, In the day when God created man... He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. And so here we have a, a general statement regarding the creation of man as, it's, as it is first recorded in detail in Genesis 1 and 2 and, and summarized here. Now, there is an interesting contrast between what Moses writes in verses 1 and 3. Verse 3 reads, When Adam lived 130 years... He became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Do you see the contrast? Adam, before sin, before his disobedience, Adam, before the fall, prior to the corruption of creation, was created in the likeness of God. But now, after sin, after his disobedience, after the fall, after the corruption of creation, Adam became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to Adam's image. So the obvious question is, what does this mean? Adam's son being created in Adam's likeness and Adam's image demonstra demonstrates to us the effects of the fall. Now, let's be very clear. Adam still bore the image of God after he sinned. But Adam, as an image bearer, was corrupted by his sin. And so this doesn't mean that mankind isn't created in the image of God. And this is evident from passages such as Genesis 9, 6, which reads, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made him. The very basis for claiming that capital punishment is the appropriate penalty for murder is that God made man in his image. But the implication in our text this morning is that this image which we bear has been tainted, it has been marred, but it was not completely destroyed by Adam's sin. And so it is in this sense that Seth, Adam's son, is in the likeness and image of Adam. And this is hugely important to understand because it means that this corruption this tainting and marring of the image of God in Adam, that this sin has been passed on, not only to Seth, but also to those that are sons and daughters of Adam, to you and I, 
and all of humanity. We read about this throughout Romans chapter 5. Turn with me to Romans 5, verse 12. I want you guys to see this with your own eyes, as Matt likes to say. Romans chapter 5. And let's take a look at verse 12. Romans 5, verse 12 reads, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And now glance down to verse 15. For if by the transgression of the one the many died. And then verse 18. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. And then verse 19. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were appointed sinners. John MacArthur's systematic theology provides insight into the meaning of all of this in the following words. Adam's sin is imputed to all who are united to him as the representative of humanity. Adam's guilt is our guilt. While affirming that a corrupt nature is passed down from Adam, representative headship teaches that all people are condemned because of their direct relationship to Adam. Well, that, that, that doesn't seem fair. Right? So, so, preacher, you're telling me that even though I didn't eat the forbidden fruit, that because Adam is the representative of humanity, I'm treated as guilty for a sin that I didn't commit? No. I'm not telling you. That's what Scripture is telling you. I am merely the messenger and bear no authority apart from what God's Word says. And just to twist the knife a little bit more, take a look at Romans 5.14, which says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam. Death reigned over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam. Remember, death is the consequence of sin. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. If you die, it's because that's your deserved wage Due to your sin. Think of, think of how this word wage is normally used. It's used to indicate an amount of money that you've earned for work that you've performed for another. The point is, you've earned it. And the wages of sin is death. The thing which you earn, the thing which you deserve, the thing which God owes you because of sin is death. Death is like the paycheck that you receive because of your sin. But, but wait a minute. Adam ate the fruit. I didn't eat the fruit. That's the point of Romans 5.14. This wage, death, reigned over not only Adam, but even over those who had not sinned like Adam. Adam ate the fruit. You and I did not eat the fruit. Romans 5.14 is telling us, nevertheless, Death reigned from Adam to Moses to you and I. So it's not just me, the preacher. It's not just John MacArthur's systematic theology that is saying this. It's God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word that is telling us this. Do you know how we can know that we are just as guilty as Adam when he sinned? Do you know how we can know that if we had been in Adam's shoes, tempted to eat the forbidden fruit, that we would have done exactly the same as he did. We know that we are no different than Adam because we sin too. If our nature was different from Adam's and thus not corrupted with sin like Adam's was, then we might, and I say might, have a leg to stand on, but that is not the case. Every day, every moment, our hearts, our lives, apart from Christ, are only ever sinful. Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, not some, not a few, not even a many, but all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is because we are all sons and daughters of Adam. It should be interesting to you that this verse doesn't say, for Adam sinned and therefore all fall short of the glory of God. 
It'd, it'd be true if it said that. But the point of Romans 3.23 isn't that Adam sinned. It's that we sinned. Maybe we didn't eat the forbidden fruit, but we've all told a lie. We've stolen. Men, how many of us have looked at a woman with lust in our eyes? We've dishonored our parents. We've coveted things that belong to our neighbors. And most of all, we've held so many things in our hearts with a higher regard than, than God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all looked at the glory of God, the most precious, valuable, and desirable thing in the universe, and our response is, nah, I'd rather have that little trinket over there. Our response has been to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The point is that we've all sinned. And even though we didn't eat of the forbidden fruit like Adam did, we would have. Now, that's the bad news. But thank the Lord it doesn't end there. God did not leave the pinnacle of his creation to wallow in this quagmire of sin. We've already seen this suggested in Genesis 3.15 where God is speaking of the serpent and he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This seed that is referred to here is also implied back in Romans 5. The fact of the matter is that we've only considered half of the picture. We've only seen what the first half of Romans 5.14 says. Well, here's how all of Romans 5.14 reads. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam is a type. This means that Adam points to or foreshadows him who was to come. This means that Adam points to the future seed spoken of in Genesis chapter 3, whose heel would bruise the head of the serpent. Adam is a type of Jesus Christ. Well, how? Look down a few verses in Romans 5 at verses 18 and 19. They read as follows. So then as through one transgression, Adam's, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so th through one act of righteousness, Jesus Christ's, there resulted in justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were appointed sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, Jesus Christ, the many will be appointed righteous. Adam is the antithesis of Jesus Christ. Adam is the representative of humanity guilty for their sin. Just like Christ is the representative of all those in humanity who are saved from their sin. There is one reason, or this is one reason, why the incarnation of Christ is so important. Christ could not represent saved humanity before the Father, before our judge, unless he too came as a man. Thank the Lord that he did then come as a man. And therefore, the one act of righteousness that Christ performed, that one act which overthrew the one transgression of Adam's, that one act was his perfect obedience to the Father's will. To come as a man, to live a perfect life, and to die on the cross for the sins of those whom the Father had given him. The implication is that if Adam is not the representative of humanity as described thus far, and thus if Adam's sin is not imputed to us as members of humanity and children of Adam, then Christ wouldn't be the representative of those who have been saved, of those who have had Christ's righteousness imputed to them. For just as sin is imputed to us in Adam, so righteousness is imputed to us in Christ. This is why we read the following in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, let's not overlook how Romans chapter 5 finishes. We read the following in verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, 
Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so here's the question that we all must answer. Which one of these is reigning in your life? Sin or grace? Either sin is reigning in your life or grace through righteousness is reigning in your life. There are no other options. Sin reigns in death. And grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Which one are you? Which characterizes your life, sin or grace, death or life? You know what? We all know in our heart of hearts the answer to this question. We all know whether or not we stand still, con- whether or not we still stand condemned before the Father because of our sin. And if that is you, I would implore you to turn from your sin. Confess it and repent of it before the Lord Jesus Christ and embrace him as your Lord and as your Savior. Don't try and solve this on your own terms like Cain did. But instead, come to Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And if you do, then the wages of your sin were paid for through that one righteous act of Christ on the cross of Calvary 2,000 years ago where your sin was paid for in Christ's death on your behalf as your representative. And if you embrace Christ as Lord and Savior, then you will go from death to life and from sin to grace. Christ's righteousness will be imputed to you and your sin will be imputed to Christ. Don't let another moment go by without making certain that you have worked this out in your life this morning. And if there remains any doubt about this, consider verses 4 and 5 of our text this morning. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam, that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And he died. He died. Just like God said he would. Because the wages of sin is death. Remember God commanded the following in Genesis 2, 16 to 17. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Adam died because he sinned by eating the forbidden fruit. Spiritually, Adam died in the moment he committed that sin. And now we see the fullness of the consequences of his sin in his physical death after living for 930 years. With this in mind, let's now turn our attention to the second point of our outline, the righteous line of Seth. In Genesis 4, we saw the generations of Cain. Cain, potentially the firstborn of Adam and Eve, and Eve's hope for the promise given in chapter 3. But that was not God's plan. God didn't choose Cain. And Cain, instead of being a righteous man, was a man of great wickedness. And Cain continued on in his unrighteousness in such a way that this wickedness was passed down like father, like son. And so the question arises... Where does this promised child come from that was spoken of in Genesis 3? This promised child whose heel would bruise the head of the serpent. It couldn't be Cain or any of his descendants. It couldn't be Abel. Abel's dead. Well, no problem is too big for Yahweh. The Lord had a different plan. And in due time, when Adam was 130 years old, God gave Adam and Eve another son. As Eve said in Genesis 425, God has set for me another seed in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. And this son was named Seth. And so in contrast to Genesis 4 and the wicked line of Cain, in Genesis 5 we see the righteous line of Seth. And it is from this line, it is from Seth's descendants that the promised seed would come. Now it is important to realize that this was a wicked time. It was so wicked that in two chapters, God will pour out such judgment on the earth because of the violence therein, that every living person would be killed in the flood. 
This means that every descendant of Cain, every one of them still alive at the time of the flood, would die in that flood, such that the line of Cain would be completely and utterly wiped out. But the righteous line of Seth would continue on through Noah and his three sons, Shem, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who because of Noah's righteousness would be spared from the judgment of the flood. Genesis 6-9 confirms this when it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among those in his generations. Noah walked with God. Martin Luther offers the following commentary on these men listed here in Genesis chapter 5. This is the greatest glory of the primitive world, that it had so many good, wise, and holy men at the same time. We must, must not think that these are ordinary names of plain people, but next to Christ and John the Baptist, they were the most outstanding heroes this world has ever produced. And on the last day, we should behold and admire their grandeur. Likewise, we shall also see their deeds, for then it will be made manifest that Adam, Seth, Methuselah, and the others did what they, what they did, what they what they endured from the old serpent, how they comforted and maintained themselves by means of the hope of the seed against the outrages of the world and of the Canaanites, how they experienced various kinds of treachery, how much envy, hatred, and contempt they endured on account of the glory of the blessed seed who would be born from their descendants. And yet, even in light of the righteous lives of these men, the curse of sin, its final blow is still unavoidable. Unavoidable. With the exception of one, all of these men died, starting with Adam. And so we see in our passage this morning, we see this phrase repeated over and over and over and over, and he died. Verse 5, regarding Adam, and he died. Verse 8, regarding Seth, and he died. Verse 11, regarding Enosh, and he died. Verse 14, and he died. Verse 17, and he died. Verse 20, and he died. Verse 27, and he died. Verse 31, and he died. And looking ahead to Genesis 9, 29, we also read, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This passage, like wisdom, is crying out in the streets. This passage is telling us something so crucial, so profound, and so inevitable. This passage is telling us that like these men, you and I have a day appointed by Yahweh for our death, that our days are numbered, that there is a day coming apart from the return of Christ that every person in this room and in the hearing of my voice will die. Job 14.5 says the following, speaking of man, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. And his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. And I think it's a tactic, a strategy of the enemy to do everything he can to keep us from remembering that we're going to die. We are so inundated with enticements that are designed to numb our minds and numb our hearts regarding these things. We are inundated with an innumerable amount of options to occupy ourselves in place of the things of God. Things like movies and TV shows and video games and sports, social media, and a myriad of other things, all designed by Satan to turn our minds off, to shut us down with regard to the big things that every person will face, things that this passage reminds us of. One preacher says the following about this, America is the first culture in jeopardy of amusing itself to death. The enemy does not want you or I to think about our death. And this is true for both believer and unbeliever. And it is because if we turn our thoughts, if we turn our meditations onto the day that we die, we will get a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90.12 reminds us of this. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. And the last thing Satan wants is for us to get hearts of wisdom. For in doing so, everything changes. For those who have gained a heart of wisdom are a people who see the futility of the things of this world. And instead, we see and desire the glory of eternity future with Yahweh. 
This will upend the way that we live. When our hearts and minds are reoriented on eternity, when our desires for the small things of this life are recalibrated to long for the great things of God, it is then that our lives as we live here will be turned from futility to purpose rooted in God himself. Further, if we turn our thoughts onto the day that we die, we will realize that we only have a finite time here on earth. Before we enter into glory, on the day we die, the question that we will wrestle with is have we wasted our life? My exhortation to you is don't. Don't waste your life. And in making that consideration now, in listening to wisdom, crying out in the streets, and turning our attention and efforts in this life to the things of our Lord, we will be able to say on that day that we indeed have not wasted our life, that we have not squandered away the hours and the days on things that have no lasting purpose, on things that have no bearing for eternity. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to waste this life. I don't want to get to the end and look back and have to admit that I didn't use the time I was given for the things that will matter. More importantly this morning, I don't want you to either. And this is what Genesis 5 helps remind us of. In thinking about our death, we come to a place where we will make the life that we live now worth something in eternity by the grace of God. That same preacher who previously commented about America amusing itself to death says the following about the wasted life. Life is wasted if we do not grasp the glory of the cross, cherish it for the treasure that it is, and cleave to it as the highest price of every pleasure and the deepest comfort in every pain. What was once foolishness to us, a crucified God, must become our wisdom and our power and our only boast in this world. So what does this look like, practically speaking? Well, first of all, it doesn't mean that you should leave your job to become a missionary or a full-time pastor. The Lord may be calling you to do that. But I want to be clear, if you're a husband, then the Lord has already called you to serve your wife and love her the way that Christ loved the church and give yourself for her. If you're a father, then the Lord has already called you to love your children and bring them up in the truth and admonition of the Lord. The Lord has you where you are for a reason. So, and so living the fulfilled life in light of the cross and eternity is a life where you are being faithful before God to your responsibilities as a husband or a wife. It's a life where you are being faithful before God to your responsibilities as a father or a mother. It's a life where you're being faithful before God to your responsibilities at your job and in that being a witness for Christ there. And it's a life where you are being faithful before God to your commitments and giftings here at Lakewood Bible Chapel with servants' hearts towards one another. Living the fulfilled life consists of being a light in the lives of your family, your neighbors, your friends, and your colleagues, as well as your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so the question that we face in light of the fact that we will all die is whether or not we are wasting our life. Are you wasting your life? And let me say, it's never too early or too late to come to terms with this question. Any of us could die tomorrow. That's God's decision. But you can decide today that whatever time God has determined for you to remain will not be wasted. And so with this weighty truth on the forefront of our minds, let's take a look at a man who didn't waste his life as we consider the next point in our outline, the fulfilled life of Enoch. Verses 22 to 24 read as follows. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. 
There isn't a whole lot said here about Enoch. The only additional details that we are given is that Enoch walked with God, which is something that he has in common with Noah, and that Enoch is the only one in this list that didn't die. But instead, our text says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, there are a total of five references to Enoch in the Bible, including our passage this morning. Two others are also genealogies, one in 1 Chronicles and the other in Luke. And the final two references to Enoch are found in Hebrews and Jude. And it's really interesting to note that more is said of Enoch, actually, in the New Testament than the Old. Hebrews 11.5 reads as follows, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found because God took him up. For prior to being taken up, he was approved as being pleasing to God. And Jude 14 to 15 reads as follows, But Enoch in the seventh generation of Adam also prophesied about these men, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch was a man living in a time of great wickedness, and yet in the face of the evil and wickedness in his time, he walked with God. Some speculate that Enoch's life changed from one lived in wickedness to righteousness after his son Methuselah was born. Some suggest that the birth of his son was such a compelling example of the blessings and mercy of God upon his life that it was this that drove him to his knees in repentance, and thus Enoch became a man who walked with God. Now, the fact of the matter is, we really don't know for sure if this is true or not, because the Bible doesn't explicitly state this one way or the other. What is clear in Hebrews 11.5 is that Enoch was a hero of the faith, that he was a man with such a saving faith that it resulted in him being taken up so that he would not see death. It is also interesting to note that Enoch is specifically mentioned in Jude as being the seventh descendant of Adam. And this is probably, probably because the author of Jude was familiar with the geological record of both Cain and Seth, each of which contains a descendant named Enoch. One, of, uh, one the third descendant of Cain, the other the seventh descendant of Adam, one a wicked man who hated God, the other a righteous man who walked with God. James Montgomery Boyce provides the following insight. This has practical applications. It suggests that there is a parallel between those who are God's people and those who are the devil's, and it encourages us always to imitate God's people. God wants us to see this contrast and pattern our lives after the lives of the godly. And so what was the pattern of Enoch's life? Hebrews tells us that he was a man of faith, a, a saving faith. And Jude tells us that Enoch was a man who did not compromise, but instead he stood firm on the truth and lived in light of that truth. We learn that Enoch was a fiery preacher prophet who boldly proclaimed the future judgment that will come to the wicked, speaking of the second coming of Christ and highlighting the tens of thousands of angels that would accompany Christ on his return. Jude specifically says, that those whom Enoch prophesied about were those who had gone the way of Cain. And so the question is, as believers, what is the pattern of our lives? This passage is hugely practical for our generation because we too live in a society who has gone the way of Cain. Genesis 6 says the following in verse 5 about those who lived in the time of Enoch. It says, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't know if you can get much more bad than that. (laughs) And later in Genesis 6, we learn more about Enoch's generation. Verses 12 and 13, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. 
And as I read these descriptions of the generations of Enoch, the generation that God determined was so wicked that he wiped them off the face of the earth, these descriptions feel so familiar to me. They seem familiar to me because they could very well speak of our generation today. We live in a time when crime is ignored. And true justice is not enforced against those who commit violence. Violence is worshipped in our generation. Murder of the unborn is promoted as the highest religious sacrament of this pagan age. With over 60 million unborn babies being murdered in the womb since 1973. And that's just the United States, by the way. We live in a time when God himself is dishonored, rejected, and blasphemed outright. And those who do so have no fear of God before their eyes. Those who do so live out their wickedness publicly without any sense of the judgment that will come to them if they do not repent. We live in a time that the wickedness of our generation would make Sodom and Gomorrah blush. And they would mock the audacity and insanity of the things that are proclaimed as right and true. And yet, God has sovereignly determined that this generation is the generation we were to be born into. That this generation is the generation that you and I are to live in and that our children are to be born into. So this begs the question, how should we then live? Well, as James Boyce said, we have an example in Enoch. This is the pattern of life that we should follow. A life lived in an age not much different than our age. A life lived in such a way that, as Hebrews 11.5 says, was approved as being pleasing to God. Enoch was a man who obeyed God as Lord of his life and thus stood on the truth in the face of the opposition and wickedness of those around him. And he didn't do this in the quiet of his own home. On the contrary, he prophesied about these men. He preached about the judgment to come upon his generation. And so the question we must consider is, are we a people who cowers before the evil that has permeated everything around us, or will we be a people like Enoch, who stand on the word of God in the face of evil, no matter what the cost, and with the prayerful hope that some might hear the truth, repent of their wickedness, and embrace the one true and holy Christ as their Lord and as their Savior. As we've considered the life of Enoch, let's now turn our attention to Enoch's son, Methuselah. And more specifically, the name that Enoch chose for Methuselah. While there is some disagreement about the meaning of the name Methuselah, many scholars suggest that his name means, when he dies, it shall be sent. Now, the potential significance of this becomes much more clear when we learn that Methuselah died just before God sent the flood, the flood that was to judge the earth of its wickedness. When he dies, it will be sent. So it is very possible that God had Enoch prophetically name his son Methuselah with the coming judgment of the flood in mind. And therefore, the fact that Methuselah lived longer than anyone else, 969 years, tells us something about God. Namely, it speaks of God's long-suffering. It speaks of His patience, His mercy, and His grace. We read about this aspect of God's character in Romans 2, 4, which says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness? and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Even in the face of such wickedness, God waited. God was not quick to pour out his wrath and judgment upon this evil and wicked generation. And it is very likely that Methuselah, in how long that he lived, was a symbol of God's forbearance, patience, and kindness in light of the wickedness that surrounded Enoch. And now we've come to the final point in our outline, the future rest of Noah. Verses 28 to 32 read, And Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. 
Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he became the father of other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 770 years, sorry, 777 years, and he died. And Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so here we see another name, the name Noah. And in this case, we are given the meaning of this name in verse 29, which reads, This one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. And if we look back to Genesis chapter 3, we see this cursed ground that is mentioned in the meaning of the name of Noah. Specifically, Genesis 3.17 says the following, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Genesis 3, 17 to 19 speaks of the curse of man because of sin, that in pain we would eat of the ground all of the days of, of our lives. And this correlates to the name of Noah, implying a rest from, a, a comfort from this pain of working the ground. And so Noah's name is also prophetic. It is prophetic in how it speaks about the time when the curse of sin would be removed, when the heel of the seed would bruise the head of Satan. It, again, speaks of Jesus Christ. Rest. Isn't that a great word? In light of all of the chaos and all of the evil that was in the day of these early patriarchs, and in light of all of the wickedness of our day, rest is what lays ahead for those who are in Christ, for those whose lives are characterized by a love for and submission to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But the implication is that now is not a time for rest. Instead, it's a time for action. It's a, it's a time to work and invest our lives in the things of God. Obviously, there, there is an appropriate time for rest, even in this life, but our lives should not be largely characterized by it. So let's be a people like these men, people like Enoch. Let's be a people who spend our lives here and now for the Lord, a people that work for the things of God, that are awake for the battle that lies before us, to fight for the souls of men and the glory of God with the hope of eternity in mind. Then we will rest in the worship and enjoyment of Yahweh forever. But now, now we are to be busy with the things of the Lord. Let's let that become the pattern of our lives, first and foremost in our marriages, in our parenting, in our work, and here in the body of Lakewood Bible Chapel. Let's let that become the pattern of our lives as we leave here this morning. Amen? Amen. Now I invite Noel and the music team back up to lead us in musical worship as I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for passages like Genesis chapter 5, which remind us, Lord, of really the shortness of our life. And Father, I pray that uh, we would remember this with wisdom, and Father, that our lives would be lived in such a way that they are not wasted, but instead you are glorified through them, and, and people will come to know you, and Lord, that we would live for you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.